live. Yeah. It's the top part. Yeah, it's recording. It's the top part. Remember that. Yeah. Top part. I see. All right. rahim Alhamdulillah. Rabbil Alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barak la nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Allahumma la sahla illa ma jaltaw sahla wa anta tajlul hazna idha shi'na sahla. Allahumma a'inna ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa husna ibadatika ya Rabbil Kareem. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So it's good to have uh, everybody um, here, or so everybody meaning lots of folks here. Um, and today is the last of the sessions for this academic year, year 12. Yeah. Academic year 12. This is the last session that we are doing on site here in Chido. Uh There are two more uh, sessions uh, before the year ends. The next one, inshallah, will be on Thursday. So I'm just announcing that right now, that next week's one will not be on Wednesday as per normal, because I'll be traveling, unfortunately. Uh, but it will be on Thursday, same time, 8, 10 p.m. UK time. And for those folks who are local in Medina to Munawwara, then inshallah, it will be 10 past 11 local time uh, on Thursday night. Okay, so it will not be on Wednesday next week. Again, all of this information will be on the uh, portal and on the app and it will be in the chat group as well so that's next week's lesson and then the week after inshallah it will be back to Wednesday 8 10 p.m. local UK time and it will be in Mecca Allah, inshallah and that will be uh, 11 10 local time 11 10 local time in Mecca but otherwise the lesson will be the normal time okay folks then we expect Taraweeh to start on the Sunday night all right so that will be the end of the, the, the year, maybe Sunday night, maybe Monday, but whatever. But basically Ramadan will be in full swing. And then we will, uh, this will be a kind of shortish year. But then I think moving forward, we're going to have two semesters. Moving forward, we will have two semesters because now it's getting too short in the year, too early in the year uh, where we stop. Yeah, so that's going to be the big change for academic year 13. That's the first thing I wanted to say. Uh, secondly, Jazakumullah khair for all the people who have been passing messages and all the rest of that. Um, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept it from you all. And the third thing is, is that Amjad decides to come for the one lesson of this year. And he wants to show us, obviously you know that the fiqh of death is currently the big thing right now. I remind everybody to make sure that they not only get hold of the class and put it into their family kind of accounts, but to make sure everybody else that might not be practicing, might not be you know, to au fait with the whole Dean situation, that they get that link and that they do the same. And if they have financial problems, they apply for the assistance, plenty of that as well. But they must not miss out on this class. One of the aspects of this class is the idea of grieving, which we did, we did a session on last night, myself and Omar Suleiman. And um, obviously it was meant to be just a live webinar, it's not meant to be the class uh, the class, in the class we cover grieving over a couple of sessions. One of the interesting things about grieving um, is that 
it has a phrase called al-hidad, hidad. And the word hidad comes from the, uh, the root of had, which means a limit, right? And the reason that the concept of grieving is defined by the word limit is because our grieving is meant to be limited. This is very interesting, actually. Audio, okay. you, I don't know, you don't spin to audio, it's got an echo on it. An echo? Yeah. Okay. It's not, it's not good. What do you want me to do? I don't know, what did he do? Oh, Allah, he... Yeah, okay, there's not one then. We'll carry on recording on it, and you, you, you put in your yes. uh, snowball. Easy do the behavior of this one, yeah. Um, so, the idea... Oh, you know what, I, I completely... I forgot the folks online. Right. Um, so yeah, the word hidad uh, um, You know, subhanAllah, there's such a lot of wisdom in not just knowing and understanding these words and their, these phrases, but also the Arabic language and how the Sharia uses existing Arabic words to determine a concept which is so deep if you actually think about it. Yeah, I need cultural point of view but the religious basis for it is the hadith around hidad that only the wife of a male who passes away um, has a four month ten day grieving period everybody else can only limit themselves to three days and if you think about it what no sound at all huh there's a interference here it's better it's okay now, yeah. Right. Okay. Static sound, X sound. Yeah, it's, gone, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. All right. So, um, and, I mean, a wife, you'd, you'd, you'd hope in most cases will be mourning Yani pretty hard. Maybe not always. But there'll be other family members that, that will be obviously mourning, you know, like parents, for example, for losing a young one or siblings or best friends for example that's tough and um, it's very interesting how the Sahaba were so strict about expressing the Sunnah of Hidad that they would intentionally even though they have zero desire or mood or the vibe for it they would introduce after three days are up things to indicate that the game is over or that the, 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 the period is over I say that because I have zero desire for all of these horrible sweets that are going around right now. And uh, uh, he's, he's come here thinking that it's a celebration as opposed to condolences and ta'aziyah. But actually he's done the sunnah. He's allowed us to be able to park that away. The grief is gone. That, we don't want to hear about that anymore. That's yesterday's news. And now it's all sweet. So, yeah, whoa, whoa, is it lala? Nothing. I'm a rock. I'm a rock. I just want to remind you guys I'm a rock here. 
you know, that we start to worry. Yeah? So it's a good thing that I'm, I'm a rock. <laughs> so, um, and so you see from the Salaf, and you see from the Sahaba, actually, I remember that uh, Zainab, one of the uh, si yeah, one of the sisters who, uh, of one of the Sahabiyat who passed away, she said that uh, uh, bring me some perfume, bring me some perfume, and she was like, bring you perfume. She goes, yeah. And she put the perfume on, and she goes to uh, one of the uh, other Sahabiyat there. She goes, Wallahi, if I have even one percent desire for this perfume on right now. But I heard the Prophet Sallallahu say that it's not permissible to grieve longer than three days, indicating that everything is back to normal, which is important, right? Because this is what people don't understand about uh, grieving, that it's allowed to be sad. It's allowed to be depressed inside. It's allowed to cry, and continuously so, especially if someone who's close. However, it's not allowed for that, for that uh, uh, grief, or sorry, for that uh, episode or incident or that death to paralyze you. <coughs> this is not Islam. This is something else entirely. It's not acceptable for people to use that as an excuse because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the system to be based upon nothing but that. Where do you think all the billions of people are going to go? Where do you think, yani, what do you think is going to happen for your entire life other than you see grief, death, depression, X, Y, Z, and every time you're just going to stop, yani, uh, down tools and, and, and you know, you know? And also, if you think about it, three days is not very long, which would also indicate that we are going to see a lot of grief. We're going to see a lot of death. And I know that sounds like that stating the bleeding obvious, but I just think that we miss the obvious. I don't know how many times that I repeat this hadith. Like you think in your life as a teacher, you'd be repeating hadith about education or about obligations or I don't know about salah or something like that. But I cannot think of a hadith that I repeat more on a daily basis and a weekly basis and a monthly basis at home, abroad, in family, in strangers, in friends, in response to questions. I cannot think of a single hadith that I repeat more than Nabi Sallallahu said that a dunya sijn al-mu'min, that this world is the prison of the believer. I have to keep saying it. It's like as if people forgot. It's like people don't realize that you are living a dream because you're meant to be in a prison. And as I said last night, not some flipping Scandinavian Norwegian liberal prison, but it's like a five-star hotel. I'm like, think of them one of those flipping Colombian jobs. You know where they chop you up and stuff? Yeah, or if you get caught in the showers, yeah, and it being whatever is the best result possible. Because actually what should happen is you get like, you know what I mean? Like that's that kind level prison, old school medieval kind of prison, right? That's what your mind should be thinking about every single day. So every single day when you wake up and you're not in a prison and you're not getting destroyed, you're not getting cut up and you're not being, you know, that's a day where you should think, subhanAllah, that was the base default position that was meant to be today. But today I got an extra two hours sleep. Today I got breakfast. Today I had a hot meal. Today my child smiled at me. Today that I was able to earn some money. Yani all things are not meant to happen when you're in prison. And then if you get touched in that day with the reality of what a prison might be, grief, depression, this, that, whatever, and people are like massive shock and massive kind of breakdown. Bro, what's happening? 
your whole default life is meant to be like that. And it's, it's, it's like, uh, it's weird, subhanAllah. It's weird because you would have thought that everybody understands that, but, 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 but people don't. And that's why people process grief so poorly. That's why people break down far too much when it comes to uh, grief, or they make it prolonged far too much. And uh, uh, that's, not, not, that's, that's, not, that's not healthy and it's not good science because as I said, life is going to be full of grief, right? And that's why when a person sees what happens in, in Gaza, if you don't have this kind of framework in place, you will completely collapse, right? And that level of collapse can send people into dark places. And th those dark places are not from Islam. They're not from Islam. So it's important as a reminder. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. Anyway, please enjoy these sweets and eat and be merry. All right. Um, all right. So today we're going to uh, start what we think is, yeah, possibly will take us home for the next three uh, sessions. So for those who have not been uh, staying tuned, I, I always worry about when I'm away, certainly for you lot anyway, because I know you lot don't, don't know anything about what happens online. I know some of you guys do, but yeah, the boys, they don't even know what the hell's going online. They don't got any signings or nothing, right? But um, so I know that you're out of the loop, but we've started a chapter of Jum'ah. We've been speaking over the last few weeks about um, who is obligated upon. And... Um, if we were to summarize the last four lessons or three lessons that I've been away uh, and teaching online as opposed to here, I think the most important kind of take home is the way that people did not understand the concept of the traveler and Jumu'ah. Everybody has this blanket idea that if I'm a, if I'm a traveler, I don't pray Jumu'ah. And in actual fact, there's two misconceptions I think that I can summarize the last three lessons. Who doesn't pray Jumu'ah and what the consequences are? And what's the situation of the traveller? So let's start with the one who doesn't pray Jum'ah. In our hearts and minds, thankfully, thankfully, from a cultural point of view, we see Jum'ah like an Iman Islam kind of issue. Like it's absolute life and death and miss whatever you want, but don't miss Jum'ah. You know what? I'm happy for the Muslims to live like that. However, from a legal point of view, actually, person doesn't need to be dying of illness to just not attend the Jum'ah and pray Dhuhr at home instead. So that's an interesting legal point, right? That if you are ill and if you don't feel up to it, chill. Stay at home, pray dhuhr, it's not the end of the world. You're not one of those people whose hearts have been sealed, etc., etc. You have an excuse and that is a legal excuse for you not to pray. And then of course we expounded on other legal excuses. For example, living or working in an area in which 10, 20 miles there's no masjid. So you're not a traveller, but the town or the village or the city or the wherever you are, you're not a traveller. So the distance you've traveled from your home is not like, you know, 50 miles, 48 miles, whatever. It's 10, 20 miles, but you are in a different town, completely owned to, to Manchester. Like this would be a good example. I mean, everyone needs to use their own example in their own, obviously we've got lots of Canadians, Americans, but for example, in Manchester, we're South Manchester, around right the edge of Cheshire, right? So it doesn't take five, 10 miles before we get out to Audley Edge and to blah -de blah and whatever. And those are distinct separate towns that are absolutely distinct from Manchester. They are. But it's not exactly more than half an hour to get there. A person going and being there and the Jum'ah not being established, 
is actually a legitimate excuse for that person to not be praying Jumaat. We spent a good couple of, uh, uh, well, we spent a whole session discussing that as one of the, the exceptions. And then we spoke about the traveller, and we said that the traveller themselves, if they are on the motorway, for example, travelling, they started off in the morning, or they've been travelling you know, for a, a day or two, bit of flight, bit of coach, bit of train, bit of this, bit of that, it is not the sunnah, and actually a lot worse as well, to suddenly detour into a gotta find a masjid to pray Jumu'ah because it's Friday Jumu'ah time. This is something which is not done, and was not done by the Prophet and so therefore one shouldn't do that. However, what people understood is that therefore there is never a Jumu'ah upon a traveller. No, if a traveller was to stop somewhere, if a traveller was to pause somewhere, where the Muslims live and Jum'ah is established, then that person is obligated to pray the Jum'ah prayer. So an example would be, for example, someone who lives in London and is working in Manchester for the weekend and arrived on a Friday morning, and that's obviously a distance of travelling, and it's only three days and that's time of travelling as well. However, on the Friday themselves, they are in the hotel, their work might start in the evening, for example, Jum'ah time comes round, they say to themselves, I'm a bona fide traveller, I pray Qasr whilst I'm in the hotel here, I don't need to be doing anything, Jum'ah, I don't need to go to that, I'm a traveller. Wrong. Because you're in Manchester, city of many Muslims, many Jum'ah prayers are going on, being established legitimately, you need to go and attend one of those Jum'ah prayers. Now yes, there is difference of opinion on this matter, but Sheikh Uthameen's position on it is very clear and a number of the Hanbalis and a number of the scholars this is their position and it's the safer of the two opinions and Allah knows best so that's a summary of what we've been uh, speaking about over the last um, couple of weeks Qamar so, so yeah so, so the distinction that we're making here is that this is not the one who's travelling it's when you pause, it's when you pull over, it's when you're chilling, it's when you're resting, it's when you're, you've decided to come into a Muslim area or an area where the, there are Muslims that are establishing Jum'ah, then you become part of them. It was never obligated upon you, as we said last week and the week before, but it's yeah, and it obligated uh, because of them, it's become obligated upon you. Whereas if you, as a party of people, even if you are 50 people, even if you are 50 people, which is by all scholars enough to make a Jum'ah, Right? We're all traveling as a party of people and you were all, you know, whatever, and then you decided to stop, you know, at the motorway or if you're in the desert, you're going along and you guys pause and say, listen, it's Dhuhr time. We've got enough here to do a proper Jum'ah. Right? And one of you is an Imam and the rest are all students. It makes even more sense. Right? Sheikh Uthameen said, Sheikh Muhammad Mukhtar Shankiti said, many, so many of the scholars previously said, if they did Jum'ah there and when they get told, or when that's found out, they have to repeat that prayer as dhuhr. Like same day, or next day, or next week, when, some, when you said, oh by the way, we did this, you did what? You're not allowed to pray Jum'ah. Jum'ah cannot be established for you folks. This is against the system of the Prophet It's a rejected action. You should have prayed dhuhr. Jum'ah is not upon travelers when they all are travelers. Jum'ah upon the traveller only becomes obligatory when they stop and become part of a community that is praying Jum'ah 
because of their normative state. And then it becomes obligated upon you because of them and because you stopped and stayed amongst them for a day or for five hours or whatever. Hundred percent. Not only is it not obligatory upon the traveller in principle, it's also against the Sunnah to deviate into to say, listen guys, it'd be a good idea to you know, if you're on the M six, just pull over in Birmingham, for example, we get lunch and we do Jummah kind of thing. If you're doing it for lunch, then you better pray Jummah. If you're doing it for the sake of Jummah, this is against the Sunnah of the Prophet. You should carry on. And detour intentionally to pray Jumu'ah, this is against the Sunnah. But, but, but if you were to, for example, pull a detour to get some food, detour because that actually is the detour, detour because you're staying there for the day or your work is there and you intend to move on in the evening or whatever, now you're there, there, and the Muslim community in that locality is establishing Jumu'ah, you have to pray the Jumu'ah prayer. If you were to detour and you were to pray Jum'ah with people who have a legitimate Jum'ah, then that Jum'ah will be written for you as Jum'ah and you do not need to pray Dhuhr again. What you have done though, according to a number of scholars, is a bid'ah and that the action itself is impermissible, which is strong and heavy language, but that's yani, possibly the correct opinion. So just kind of, I know it sounds a little bit complicated, but yeah, if you think about it, the whole point is, is that when you are traveling, you're not meant to be praying Jumu'ah by, by in of itself. And that's the distinct difference between if all of you are travelers and you say, let's stop here and do Jumu'ah, that is different than you put going and detouring and joining a Jumu'ah, which is done by people who are legitimately meant to pray Jumu'ah. Both of them have a problem for you, but this is a much bigger problem and it is rejected. Whereas that at least was a legitimate Jumu'ah of others. So it's like frowned upon but you don't need to repeat your prayer. Yes. No, no, that's, no, no, that's okay. If, uh, uh, my point is this, is that if a person is like a tourist, going around seeing Muslim areas, going around and seeing the culture, this and that, this is not a traveler. This is a person who is, that's part and parcel of his, of his game, the reason he's there. So this is something that, you know, that's all right. That person would pray the Jum'ah prayer, yeah. I've seen it in Muslim countries myself that you're on the motorway. There's a motorway mosque. That's right. And in that motorway mosque, there's drinking. Yeah, yeah, so the problem there is that if you're in a Muslim country where the musalla itself is establishing the, the Jum'ah prayer and it is clearly a roadside mosque meant to be just for the whatever and they establish the Jum'ah. And the reason they do is because there are people who live there, you see. That's the reason it establishes the Jum'ah. Yeah, the workers that live there, they normally got houses at the back, etc., etc., or they're foreigners that work there, you know, uh, labor, etc. Then this prayer is a valid prayer. It's a valid prayer. Uh, the the Jummah becomes a valid prayer. But it's not, shouldn't be something. But you, like, you know, intentionally getting off and attending it and the like, not, shouldn't be the done thing. Not the Sunnah. Yeah? Um, Sophia says, wouldn't you plan your journey so you can pray your Jummah? Isn't that, isn't that just better planning or is that against the sunnah? Well, that depends if you are setting off on the Friday. Yes, you should avoid setting off on Fridays. Fridays is not the day to be traveling and we're going to come to that a little bit uh, uh, later, inshallah. All right, let's read the section that we are in.
And so the Arabic of what we are covering today is Yushtaratu. Uh, this is, uh, uh, Shaz has given the link as well, and it's page 25 in Al Mumti. Yushtaratu lisahatiha shurutun laysa minha idnul imam. Ahaduha al waqt. Wa awaluhu awalu waqti salat al aid. Wa akhiruhu akhiru waqti salat al dhuhr. فإن خرج وقتها قبل التحريم صلوا ظهر وإلا فجمعة الثاني حضور أربعين من أهل وجوبها الثالث أن يكونوا بقرية بقرية مستوطنين وتصح في وتصح فيما قارب البنيان من الصحراء فإن نقصوا قبل إتمامها استأنفوا ظهرا. So I think that this the, this section will probably take us all the way to the end of the year, but let's see. Um, the translation is, there are a number of conditions for the validity of the Friday prayer. The permission of the Imam is not one of them. Firstly, the time. It starts from the beginning time of the Eid prayer and finishes when the time ends for the Dhuhr prayer. If one misses the time before even starting the prayer, he should offer the Dhuhr prayer. Otherwise, he is to pray the Friday prayer. Secondly, there must be 40 attendees present, all of whom legally convene the Friday prayer. Thirdly, these attendees must all be resident nationals of that town. However, the prayer is also valid outside any built-up areas if it is close by in the rural surroundings. If the number of attendees falls below the legal minimum before the prayer is completed, they must restart it again as the Dhuhr prayer. So that's the content for the next two to three lessons. Now some of this stuff we covered last week, right? Last week we spoke about this concept of having, you know, a prayer legally convened legally established, the concept of 40. We're going to be covering whether is 40 even correct to say that, my, you know, if you have less than 40, you can't have Jum'ah. We'll come to that. Is it true that the 40 people has to be of a very specific description? We've already covered, right? That it can't be a slave, for example, and it can't be a woman, for example, because these people are not legally obligated to pray the Jum'ah prayer. And so if there were 38 men and there were uh, two women, then according to the Hanbalis, the Jum'ah prayer cannot be prayed because the minimum 40 threshold has not been established, right? Or for example, if there were 36 men, two men traveling, two women, again, we only have 36 people, the traveling men and the ladies do not legally create the conditions to establish the prayer. And that's the position of not just the Hanbalis actually, a number of scholars see the, the minimum number thing in this light. Our class position, as we explained last week, is that there's no evidence for making people uh, legally powerful enough to enact a prayer or not allow a prayer to be enacted, right? What did we say last week? We said, how is it possible that if this person was to pray the Jum'ah prayer, we'd say that that prayer is valid, but you are not valid enough to enact the prayer. You're not important enough or legal enough to allow the prayer to start in the first place. It doesn't make any sense. We also said that the idea of de de defining the 40 by 
a, a male or female or slave or whatever, again, has no evidences. But again, we're going to come to that as well, inshallah. All right. So page 25 then, folks. It is a... شروط. It has conditions that we need to um, describe. Sheikh says, شروط is the plural of the word شرط. شرط in Arabic language means a sign. All right? That's exactly its ling linguistic definition. However, its technical definition or its definition in Sharia is ما يتوقف عليه الشيء. Something which is a prerequisite for something, right? The, a certain thing cannot be established except without it. So it means a prerequisite, a condition, okay? Um, so he goes, there are different conditions. There are conditions for something to be an obligation. There are, there are conditions, for example, for something to be valid. So if you want to do this act in a valid way, you've got to do this, 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 this. And for it to be obligatory, then it needs to be this, 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 this. For an action to be acceptable, which is the weakest of all things. There are conditions. For the conditions of acceptability are this, 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 this. So this is how you, work, you use the word shart. Right? As long as you fulfill the shurut, as long as you fulfill the conditions, then you can do X, Y, and Z. So that's how you use the word shart. Also, Sheikh says something interesting as well. He goes that in the Arabic, there's a difference between shurutu shay' wa shurutu fi shay'. I think translating into English is probably to say from the conditions of. No, for the conditions to. Shurutu shay' for the conditions to establish. Yeah, let's translate shurutu shay' The conditions of something being established are So there's, that phrase means one thing And a shurut fi yani fi Is something different that, This is when people condition within an act These are two different phrases That are separated by the word fi in the Arabic language What's the practical difference between them? The shart of something, the precondition of something Is something that comes from the sharia from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is something which is legislated and is outside of the realms of people. They can't tamper with them. They can't change them. They don't, they don't have any say in the matter. They are mawdu'atu min qibla shara. They come as a matter to do with the sharia. Nothing. It's not possible for a person to waive these conditions. So for example, it is a condition for the acceptance of the prayer that a person is aqil. It is a condition for the acceptance of the prayer that a person is Muslim. It is the acceptance, it is the shart of the prayer, the X, Y, and Z. And a person can't come and say, yeah, you know what, you're not Muslim, but that doesn't matter. I can relinquish you or I maf you this condition. Do you understand what I mean? You can't because these are conditions to establish something. But the second form of conditions are shurut fishay, conditions in an act. And the conditions in an act come from the people themselves. So you can say that the first one comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Prophet comes from the sharia, and the second form of conditioning is from the people. And that's very easy to understand. For example, if I rent out a house, okay, I say to the people that here's a house, it's going to cost you 2,000 pounds a month, 
and that person says, okay, this is a, a, an aqad, a contract, and that should be the end of it. However, I can also say, I give you this 2,000 pounds a month upon the condition that A, you are going to pay the maintenance, you are going to have to accept the gardening contract that the previous guy had, and I want to continue. You have to ensure that this happens, you have to ensure this happens. You have to accept the one month deposit I want, and I want another month security deposit on top of that. I want you, it has to be a six month contract, not a year's contract. And I put all these conditions in. These are not from the Sharia. But if the other person is happy, then it becomes obligatory. But if the other person doesn't like it, we can negotiate and I can lift it and they can refuse to do it as well. Does that make sense? This is the difference between the conditions. A shart to establish an act of worship and then conditions or within an act, whether it's an act of worship or transactions between uh, people. Okay? So, a sheikh says, if we were to give the examples that the sheikh gives, he says that, for example, if you have a, a buyer and a seller situation. So the seller is selling something and it's one of those, um, uh, what do they call the box things, closed box things, you know? You buy what's in the box. Yeah, you, uh, what do they call it? Mystery box, yeah? So uh, if I, uh, 50 pounds uh, for the mystery box, right? It's, this is an invalid sale and an impermissible sale as well. It's an invalid sale because from the condition of a sale is to know what it is that you're buying, right? It is an absolute obligation. It is an absolute condition that the thing you are buying is not majhul. It is not something which is hidden or unknown of quantity or type or whatever. Because obviously that's going to lead to a disaster afterwards when you open it and realize it's a couple of trinkets or something like that. Whatever. So this condition has not been fulfilled. And therefore, this act is invalid. Um, even, Sheikh says, Even if the two parties are happy with it. And often, you are. The guy definitely selling it, yani he's part of the game. And you being the dumb pack that you are, you know, you're happy as well. I will never forget the first time that I fell for that one, by the way. I was with my mum, right? I must have been about 12 years old. And it was in London, and it was held at the local pub. It's the first time I ever went to a pub, by the way. Amazing, right? It was like, I remember it, all red decadent carpets and, you know, upholstered seats. And I was like, wow, what's happening here? And then they said, it's upstairs. And they'd, ha they'd hired out the whole of the upstairs part. And it's all, you know, loads of people and this guy at the front, you know, Cockney guy. Right, right, right. And he's like showing all these gadgets, CD players back in those days, Walkmans. Was it CD players? No, it was earlier than CD. Walkmans and things like that. Stereos, little TVs, this, that, whatever, all over the place. Kept pulling him out of boxes. <laughs> and then a customer, I'm just a pure bestie. This is. And then, you know, he would obviously had planted people, didn't he, in, in, in the crowd. And he was saying, right, you've seen this, you've seen this. Who's going to give me this for this box here? A hundred quid whatever, and people go, ah, everyone's going mad, and then he gives it to one person, and the guy takes it and, you know, theatrically opens it in front of everybody, pulls out, you know, this time, ah, got like a grand's worth of stuff, 100 quid, so then the guy, you know, thinking, we were going mental, my mum is, you know, jumping me up, you're taller, you only put your hand up, this, that, whatever, and I'm going, me, me, then they, then they go, right, 
and then they started obviously they did another one or two to the plants then they said we ain't got time if we want to really service everybody we can't have people keeping opening all these boxes right and we're like we, we understand we just want to get our box and get out so then they just started giving out the boxes to every person and the way that it was it was like complete chaos and by the time basically you had even a chance to understand what's going on you're already pushed out you're already thinking and the way that it's wrapped is taking time to open the damn thing yeah I can never forget it man we was like this is too busy in here we can't do this because here let's just go outside and then we'll, we'll do it <laughs> by the time that we found some calm peaceful moment to open the flipping thing yeah inside literally nothing just junk like nothing actually well like, what the hell is this uh, right by the time honest to god maybe 10 minutes has gone by by a turn around everybody's gone upstairs the people who are selling they're gone and the only people who are left are the people who have paid trying to work out what just happened yeah so that's obviously yani the 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 uh, the, the, the the kind of the, the social version of this but in in uh, in transactions this comes up quite a lot quite a lot a lot more common than you may think um, especially when it comes to uh, agriculture especially when people are selling you land and you've seen good results and they're specifying a per certain part of the land right and it's not acceptable to be buying just on the uh, hearsay uh, of what's happened before previously and the like so this would be uh, uh, impermissible to not make it clear what you're buying then Sheikh says another example of a person uh, um, where you condition within something is that a person he uh, sells a house um, and he, he, he uh, makes it a condition that the sale means that um, either I rent it to you for a period of time or I want to stay in this for a period of time before I hand it over that's from the conditions of the sale then these are acceptable and uh, they are from the, the people themselves and if they accept them they don't and there's no problem anyway on page 26 Sheikh says that the Jummah is the same there have to be a certain number of conditions that need to be there for it to go ahead and be a legal uh, freestanding prayer the Sheikh then says he goes it's really interesting how Imam al-Hajjawi has started this normal legal section instead of just listing the conditions he's just jumped in and said the permission of the Imam is not one of them now we've covered this kind of situation before when you hear a random kind of completely out of context statement in fiqh like that you know that there's a controversy going on you know that what they're doing is trying to refute a populist or a controversial opinion amongst other scholars and that's exactly what's happening here by the way when you hear the word imam right now the word imam in our modern time is nonsensical everyone's an imam right but the thing is is that the word imam is a very specific phrase uh, imam means the highest authority in the muslim land and not just religious it means polit po political authority or scholarly or whatever and so it's either referred to, it's either referring to as the sheikh said as uh, that person could be called the imam or the khalifa or the emir or the rais or the sheikh all of this is referring to the senior uh, authority and the reason for that is because the Jumu'ah prayer really is a very big massive congregation that generally is happening with the permission of the single kind of leader however uh, and so therefore people kind of use this as a 
some kind of condition. They said that, that the Imam's permission has got to be a condition. Sheikh Uthameen says, how on earth is that possible? This is not something actually which is in his hands. The Jum'ah has to be established. It doesn't matter whether he likes it or not. It has to happen. And I'm not exactly down with the way that the phrase has been used. He goes, uh, Sheikh says that, um, that the Hanbali school does not accept this the, 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 you've got to seek permission from the Imam before the Jum'ah can go ahead they don't accept this and there are some scholars though that said you do need the permission um, uh, for, uh, of the uh, Imam and Sheikh says that this is something which is not good rather what should have been said what should have been said is that to do Jum'ah does not require the permission of the ruling authority but it does require to be signed off by a religious department like the department of iftar and then he gives this personal example he goes like for example for us that's how we do it we have like a uh, a, a department that signs off the the permission to give jumu'ah and the only reason is, is because if we didn't have this, then everybody would just be establishing Jum'ah willy-nilly, right? And then it doesn't become what the Jum'ah is meant to be, which is the minimal number of congregations with the largest numbers, but it rather comes like what we have. And I told you guys this maybe a couple of months back or whenever, that if you want to see, if you want to understand how not to pray Jum'ah, or if you want to see an expression of what Jum'ah does not look like, then look at the Jum'ah that we pray. Like it couldn't possibly be further from what Jum'ah actually is. And I mean we, I mean us in the UK, the US, Canada, Europe, okay? We are praying it in every little kind of, you know, nook and cranny. We're doing our work, a couple of people here and there, multiple prayers, right? So one at half twelve, one at one twenty, one at two twenty. There are a number of scholars that said this is completely invalid. May, many, many scholars, as we covered last week and the week before, have said that the, the Musafir cannot be the Khatib. <laughs> but in these messages, they only like to give the, the khutbah to the Musafir. The you know, celebrity speaker would fly in, give the khutbah, you know, whatever. Like, every single condition <laughs> for the Jum'ah prayer, we've broken. Right? For example, the... Uh, uh, the Hanbali school, as we're going to maybe not get to today, but the, the Hanbali school is from the Mufridat of the Hanbali school. The word Mufridat means the unique positions of the Hanbali school, right? Because every school has unique positions that no other scholars hold. The Hanbali school has a couple of these, like, for example, that camel meat breaks your wudu, for example, and the obligation of saying Rabbi in the prayer between the two sajda, for example. And this point here, which is that the Jum'ah prayer is starting before Jum'ah time, before Dhuhr time, yeah? The Jum'ah prayer starts like 11 o'clock in the morning kind of thing, pre-Jum'ah time. Only the Hanbalis hold this position as a formal school, right? And of course, this is rejected by the majority, and we're going to also deal with it ourselves. But ironically, that fatwa is also in play in the West. Right? No, no, I've never ever in all of my travels in all of my years ever seen a Muslim country, even in those areas like Saudi, for example, which is the Hanbali Madhab, is official Madhab for it, they've never used this fatwa. 
But who uses this fatwa or who uses this position, even if it's an erroneous one, are the Muslims in the West. They actually, you might not have seen it, but if you are in the kind of busier towns, I remember seeing it in, in Canada, I remember seeing it in Calgary specifically, and a few other places as well, uh, where there was just not enough time for the community to be able to uh, pray. The community is so big, the masjid too small, and they need to have four Jum'ah prayers. And the only way to do four Jum'ah prayers is to have one starting before the time and use the Hanbali Fatwa, and then three within the time before Asr started in the winter times. Make sense what I'm saying? And so what I'm trying to say is that ours is such this kind of Frankenstein model, right? Our Jum'ah is unrecognizable from a classical Islamic fiqh position. So I just want you to be aware of that. Anyway, the point is, is that the reason we do that is because in the West there is no Islamic authority. We just do what we want. Yeah, we don't have a, a scholar or an Islamic yani, imam that we wait for their permission before we set up a Jum'ah in a hospital, set up a Jum'ah at workplace, set up Jum'ahs in schools, set up Jum'ahs left, right, and center, this, that way. We don't. And obviously, there are pros and cons to that, but it is what it is. And what Sheikh Uthameen is saying that although it's not down to one imam to, to prohibit the Jum'ah prayer, he can't, it is good that there is an authority that controls it and that regulates it so that we don't have madness going uh, uh, on. And by the way, I'll also go further and say that Sometimes situation can get out of control as well, um, even with the, 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 the best of intent. Like in Manchester, I can give you examples. Uh, uh, I, I can't see any of the old school here, but um, Didsbury back in the day, bro, that was a madness. In Didsbury Masjid, the khutbahs were like, it was like war. Your father, alayhi rahmatullah, bro, the amount of missions he used to go through, trying to control the madness, yani, that... Uh, uh, they would either yani, push him up and try to give the khutbah themselves yeah, And it would be just takfir from the beginning to the end You're kafir, you're kafir, you're kafir, you're kafir Then the, the, the salah would finish and then people would stand up No, no, you're the kafir And it was just kafir, it was tennis Kufr tennis Kras, kruz, kras, kruz And it was a madness Pawn chops, this, that, whatever, blah, blah, blah Yeah Disbury Masjid, my goodness That was drama, that That was a good fun yani, khutbah That was And um, so we need that regulation. And honestly, the amount of times that we had to imagine the Muslim community having to get the police involved. Now, now getting the police involved in a normal pack mosque is a standard thing. Bringing a, a police down to Disbury Mosque is kufr upon the kufr of the kufr. <laughs> right, you've now done yani, hukum bil kufar, yani, you are kafir khalis, you are. Your blood is halal, this, that, whatever. Gehlan would be in the middle, like, what the hell is going on? We were like, what's happening here? So there does need to be some kind of uh, regulation. Anyway, so ahaduha al-waqt. The first condition is the time. The time. Now, Sheikh says something nice here. He goes, um, the reason that the author starts with uh, the time is because it is without doubt the primary condition and the most important condition of nearly every act of worship, especially salah. When it comes to salah, then it is the same for Jum'ah or the same for the five daily prayers. The time is absolutely uh, the most important thing. And Sheikh says something interesting. He goes, once the time has come in, it is so important compared to the other conditions. So let's think about prayer. Just randomly mention some conditions for the validity of prayer, folks. Come on. Time. No, no. After time. 
Because we're saying time is so important and I'm going to show you by comparing it against other conditions. So name some conditions. Wudu, the right number of raka'at, very good. Sanity, uh, yeah, sanity, okay. So, sorry, just, just want to pause on sanity. The reason, um, no, okay, that's fine, that's fine. Yep, carry on. Think about the prayer though specifically. Huh? Direction, qibla, very good. Obvious one that you're missing? Yeah, intention, yeah. Obvious one that you're missing for salah? Muslim, obvious, yeah. Uh, not, 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 uh, not pillars in the prayer. Conditions for the prayer, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clothes, all right. Clothes, and well, I'll say one more: freedom of najasa, right? A person can be in wudu, right, which is a condition for the prayer, but they can have najasa on them. Understood? Sheikh Uthaymin says that think about all of these conditions. Yeah, they're all a list, but some are more important than the others. None of them come close to time, because. If you are in the time and the time is about to expire, all of these conditions are dropped. So you have to pray naked if you are naked, don't have clothes. You have to pray without wudu if you don't have wudu. You have najasa on your hand and you can't find any water to get rid of it. You pray bihasbihalihi. He prays exactly how he is. Look at all these conditions that are being kind of. You get, you get what I'm trying to say? Because the time is that important. Why? Because the, the prayer. After that is expired So you'd say right the time is expired But so is this Well okay no These other conditions we can let them expire We can pass on those Because you have to pray according to the time So that just goes show it just, It's just using an example To illustrate just how important um, time is For example he said standing for the prayer Right If a person for example is too tired Right And Knows that in this two hours of Dhuhr I can't stand for the prayer Yeah He can make the intention And say I will combine with Asr Because I'm very ill And then I will be able to stand And I'll pray later on both of them But let's leave combining out If a person can't stand for the prayer And doesn't want to combine Then he doesn't stand for the prayer Okay He sits down Because the time is more important Like a person might say That's a good example that's come to my head A person might turn around and say What you can't stand you're not allowed to pray then You've got to combine with Asr later on You get what I'm saying? You would say I don't have to combine later on with Asr This is the time to pray Dhuhr And if I can't stand up I can't stand up This is the time for Dhuhr I don't have to combine Just so that I have to stand This is the legal time I have to offer this prayer If I can't offer it Except in the state that I am in I will offer it in the state that I am in Make sense? So this is going to show how important Time is, yeah. Um, Sheikh says so. If all of these things, and he's got something on his hand, and he can't get hold of water until the asr time, we will not say to this person, "Wait until you can fulfill all the conditions." <laughs> no, rather, this person has to pray there and then in their state, um, in uh, if he feels that the time will fall out. Now he says something very, very interesting. He goes that the author, if you notice in the Arabic, he said, Ahaduha al-waqt. The first of these conditions is the time. Whereas when he was speaking about the five daily prayers, he said that the first of the conditions is Dukhul al-waqt. The entry 
of the, or the entering of the time. Sheikh says, is this a typo from the author? Does he mean the same thing? Is it just a synonym to say the time and the entering of the time? So the word the time for Jum'ah and the entry of the time for the five daily prayers. What, what, what do you think? You think that this is the same thing, making a point out of nothing? Why, why would it be different? Okay, go on. How, how would you... Uh, 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 so, if first of all, it's not, you're saying it's not random. Okay. So if it's not random, the, the way that he's named it, why did he not... Why did he uh, create two different phrases? What is he trying to emphasise? Yeah. So what Bob said for the sake of the microphone, he said that well, we already know that the Hanbalis are saying that the, that the prayer starts earlier anyway, and they, he's already mentioned that his start time is the start of the Eid prayer time, and that doesn't really have a time. Actually, it does. As we're going to see, the Eid prayer start time has a start time. So it means the same thing, actually. No, there's another reason. All right. The end of the time is the beginning time. The time is uh, perfect answer. That is the perfect answer. When you say the time, you are talking about a very specific set time. For Jum'ah, that is the case. Because if the Asr time comes, Jum'ah is gone. And at Asr time, you cannot now go back and say, I'm going to pray Jum'ah. You have to pray. Dhuhr. Understood? What about if it's Dhuhr time? What, sorry, what if it's the Thursday and it's Dhuhr? If Asr time comes and you do not pray Dhuhr, what do you pray? Dhuhr. Do you understand the point? The entry of time, entry of the time, exactly as Abu Dhar said, is indicating that after this time, it's, it's like you're in. And if you've got an excuse or no excuse, and you might have an excuse, for example, you're asleep. Now, if you're asleep and you wake up, we know that the Prophet ﷺ said, then let him pray when he wakes up. If he wakes up at Maghrib time, let's say he's completely knocked out, he, the alarm is going, he can't hear it, he sleeps through Dhuhr, sleeps through Asr, and sleeps into Maghrib. When he wakes up, he's got to pray Dhuhr, Asr, and Maghrib. And that's legitimate for him. The excuse was the fact that he overslept without negligence. There could be a different example. He is negligent. He keeps looking at the clock, I've got time, I've got time, I've got time, and then he looks again and he's half hour into Asr. He's going to get blamed for this. He is sinful for this and still has to pray the whole time. Do you get my point? Now, apply these two scenarios to the Jummah situation. This oversleeping Jummah or the intentionally, you know, right? Is he allowed? No. He's not allowed. He can't go back and make up Jummah, right? He's got to pray now Dhuhr. He's missed opportunity for for, for Jum'ah. And that's why the author says that there is a, a difference actually, sorry, that's what Sheikh Uthameen says, that when the author was uh, used different terminology, he was being very accurate. He was being very accurate and indicating that the, the, the situation is different for both of them. There's a very limited time for Jum'ah, but for the Salah, there's an entry time and then after that you're good to pray depending upon the situation you find yourself in which is nice actually, it's a nice uh, uh, observation 
from Sheikh Al-Uthaymin alayhi rahmatullah. So, then Sheikh says, then Sheikh says, what is the um, evidence for the start time or, 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 or indicating that the time is a condition for the Jum'ah prayer? Sheikh says that this is a consensus of all scholars, of all Sahaba, that it is not valid to pray the Jum'ah prayer except within its correct time. Then he says, at the top of page 28, The beginning time is the start time of the Eid prayer. The start time of the Eid prayer. Sheikh says, and this is why he's a balanced guy, right? In the previous page, he's praised the author for being very accurate and you know, showing that there are differences in how you phrase something with just one word. Now he's not happy with the way that the author has said this. He's saying, why would you use a phrase like that when you haven't even covered the Eid prayer? What's a person meant to know if he doesn't even know when the Eid prayer starts? And he's right, right? Because Eid prayer we haven't covered. So what does it mean that the beginning of the Eid prayer? He goes, this is not the way. And he goes, that it's important for someone who's writing books or writing anything to use terminology that makes sense. Not to create a situation where the person now has to go into the next volumes to try to find where is it that the you know about the Eid prayer. That's not what you're meant to do. You should have just said the time. So he has that little yani, correcting point. Anyway, he goes, regardless, he goes that the uh, start time. He goes at the start. You know what? I'm just wondering whether we want to start in that. I don't think we should. Because this is a big big uh, big area. No, let's let's not start there, and uh, we'll take this um, uh, at the beginning of next lesson. Let's do Q and A because there's lots of questions and stuff, and we can do that here. So, folks who have got questions online, we can do that whether it's on the class or those questions that folks have on other subjects, because this is our last session uh, in the masjid. So, if you've got questions on other matters that need to be uh, considered and dealt with, then let's do that as well. What do we have? Okay, so just clarify your. The one who is the one who has the right to shorten the prayer, i.e., he is a traveller, is excused himself from the right to pray Juma if he is travelling. Because if I have stopped for the whole of Friday, like I said in the example of the guy come from London, he comes to Manchester, he stays in Manchester for the whole day. He is a, what we call a muqim, right? He's not mustaltin. He's not a resident or a citizen of that town, but he has established himself for that period of time, shortening the rest of the prayers, etc., etc. Uh, because, you know, by all schools, he's only staying for three days, and so there's no difference. The Hanafis, the Maliki, Shafi, all of them, they will say he's a traveler because it's, it's over, it's less than four days, less than 15 days, less than 20 prayers. So they're all happy that he should shorten the prayer. But on that Friday, he is hanging around with the Muslim community. He is in a city in which the Jum'ah is being established. This, according to so many of the contemporary scholars, according to the Hanabila, according to the Shawafir, according to a number of scholars, not the Hanafi school, but as I said, a number of scholars, this person has to pray the Jum'ah prayer. They can't remain in their, 
in their uh, uh, place and say, I'm not praying. Now, now, what if this person is traveling and working in an area where there is a Jum'ah, but it shouldn't be? Right? So let's say this person is working in a hospital or working in a factory or gone to an office, for example, and there's a couple of Muslims there, 510, that have established a Jum'ah in that in that uh, city in that sorry in that building and there isn't a masjid for miles um, I think this is a far more difficult scenario I think that if this is in an area where there's a masjid close by I think that he needs to attend a Jum'ah but if this is like uh, uh, an office block or a, or a school or whatever that's outside of the city area and there it's like you know it's in a town of the non-Muslims basically um, then there shouldn't be Jum'ah there in the first place anyway. And you're not being affected by the Jum'ah of the surrounding areas. And the, the Jum'ah there that's going on is their own kind of little thing to keep in the game. However, as I said before, because they are not travelers like you, if you join that prayer, that prayer would be a valid prayer. Yeah. Unlike if all of you were travelers, like a gang of five of you in the office have come and you're there, you're there and you're like saying, let's establish Jum'ah in this office, there's enough of us. That's unacceptable. You guys have to pray Zohar. Zafar. So I understand if you're traveling and you're not allowed, you shouldn't make a dean call at your destination, Jummah, when you're traveling. Just for, ju just for Jummah, yeah. So I mean, we've all grown up where, so the different question is, we've all grown up where we try to plan our traveling, where we include our prayers, and if it's a message, that's great, and we do that for Jummah also. Is that right or wrong? Where we plan it into the route? It's not a detour anymore. I don't think we should have that mentality, right? But it, it, it sounds crazy that a person is planning their salah but somehow make an exception for Jummah, right? What you're saying is that a person, they want to, they want to pray comfortable, yeah? And they don't want to, for example, end up having to pray in a uh, service station, for example. So they plan the whole journey, that start time, leaving time, this, that, whatever. And if that's their habit and they're doing that just generally because of their normative prayers, but this time it turns out to be a Friday and therefore there's going to be a stop over there, I do think that this is a grey area. I don't think this is outright to be considered to be vidah and haram and rejected. Um, but it is a matter of doubt. person should not be actively seeking out Jummah as a traveller in of itself but that's why I, I to try to make it easier for people in this situation I said two things number one if you've got some other reason if you're looking to take a bit of a break and if you're looking to get some food right whether you add it onto it afterwards or you had it planned before I think that makes it a bit more healthy the second scenario remember that if it's a community that does pray Jummah then your prayer is valid anyway Yeah, I do. Uh, um, yes and yes, yes and no. It's definitely a pack thing because anything which has got any semblance of a religious basis, packs are going to run with it. But this is not restricted just to the packs. That's why Sheikh Uthaymeen and Muhammad Mukhtar Shankiti in their lessons on this, I was reading it. On their descriptions of this, they both gave personal examples of people amongst Arab students of knowledge that fall into this mistake 
let alone just basic packs that are, you know, not practicing packs that won't miss Jummah, whatever happens. So this is clearly wider than just a cultural trope. Definite. So if somebody's going to London for a day. Someone's going to London for a day. Shazad Salim's panicking, by the way. <laughs> He's in full panic mode, yeah? And, 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 <laughs> and, and, and everyone's trying to get me in trouble over it. Go on. And he goes to the BDS, BDA thingy, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, on Regent Street. He's got, got meetings all day. This person who is in the area of the Muslims should attend the Jummah prayer, yes. I'm not being specific at all. You're just trying to catch me out. Why would I have to, why, would I, why do I want to hang myself? Why are you going to BDA? Bro, are you kidding me? <laughs> London, you're trying to think that there's any area of London that doesn't have donkey shed loads of Muslims establishing Jummah. Well, Give me one place. Name me one place. Not even ten. Chigwell. What? Chigwell. Redbridge Chigwell? Islamic Centre. How far is that from Chigwell? A couple of miles. <laughs> you you realize <laughs> you realize that you've got the worst Google map system when you tried to make us believe that Oldham was like six miles away or whatever. Yes, you did, and then we had Yanni, other people who fixed that whole. Shaz is he's, I think the 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 Gen Z word is is shook. That's, I think, the phrase that they use. The boy's shook. Yeah? All right. What if we are travelers, Anna says, um, in a Muslim country and travel to specific masjids, uh, masajids, for the purpose of praying in that masjid from a historical, cultural perspective? This is what uh, Qamar asked earlier on. I think that's permissible. This is like, as I said, this is what you're actually doing. It's not, it's not you know, to pray the Jummah prayer per se. Um, there we go. Hannah's just said to you, there's literally... So many masajid around Chigwell. It's Fahad has just said to you. Bro, you'd be very surprised, bro. Very, very surprised. Um, there's a prayer room at work. Sometimes when I go there, I'm alone, so I do my dhuhr or asr. But then a group of brothers would come in, for example, and start the jama'ah. In that instance, do you break your salah and join the jama'ah or carry on and finish your own individual prayer? Um, if you do break your prayer to join theirs, that's permissible, but it's also allowed for you to continue to uh, complete your own prayer. Um, is your school establishing jama'ah? Do they have the jama'ah prayer? They don't. Then you pray dhuhr. Yeah, until you get to bigger school where they will be, will be uh, praying Jummah, and if they're praying Jummah, then you can pray that with them. Yeah? Um, I would like to know if a vasectomy is permissible for the husband, as his, this is a, a, a complete change of subject. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> just in case, just in case you didn't think any of that was. Um, but actually, there's a couple of questions that are off the subject, so that's fine. Uh, actually, are there any more on the subject whilst we're still in the zone? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So um, if you, just for the microphone, if you have done that previously, should you repeat your, you prayed the Jummah prayer when you were a traveler amongst yourselves. Let's be clear though, this is like all travelers, yeah, all travelers praying Jummah prayer. Um, should you now go back and repeat this prayer? I read the answer to this exact question from Sheikh, uh, Sheikh uh, Shankiti, and he said that yes, and his student argued back and said, what about al-Udhr the excuse of ignorance, which is the, uh, an excuse that excuses many things. And he argued, and this is debatable, but he argued that um, the excuse of ignorance is a, um, an answer which is to be used when there's not affirmative acts going on. Yani, here, normally if a person doesn't do something, you use the excuse of ignorance. Here, you actually initiated an act, right? And you initiated an action that you weren't sure about and should have spoken and got clarification, as opposed to didn't do an act that is meant to be done, you didn't know about it, and then that's it. So in his opinion, he said the person, however long it's been before, needs to repeat that prayer as a dhuhr prayer. That's his opinion. I think that this is above my pay grade to give that ruling myself, but I did like what he said. I found what he said to be intriguing. I'm not convinced by it completely, but it's certainly a better position to hold than to say, you know, I don't know or don't do anything. So I like the idea that if a per this applies to a person, where they as a group of mates went out or a family or a group of travelers and they prayed Jum'ah whilst they were traveling on their road, on their way, on their ex, then that was not a legal Jum'ah prayer and it should have been a Dhuhr prayer and therefore they are missing out on one of their Dhuhr prayers in their lives which is not covered under the, uh, the whole area of I haven't prayed half my life, that situation which we said is a very sinful situation that prayer can't be caught up again you have to make Tawbah for that and then replace that with extra Sunnah and so on that's a different category when you do in your practicing normative aware life miss a prayer because of a mistake or because you had an operation or because of X you do need to go back and make up that prayer different categories this uh, this uh, this situation it's a good question that yeah anybody else on the same subject yeah Hasna So the, the numbers we're going to come to, you're going to see that 40 is not, the, is not, the, is not a, um, a condition. Um, but if the Jum'ah prayer is being established in a school in an area that they would normally pray Jum'ah, then I find it, very, even though I hate the idea, yani from a legal point of view, I find it very difficult to say legally that that prayer is um, uh, invalid. Is well, yes, but remember, in an ideal situation, what would I be saying? I'd be saying that in that scenario, they'd be praying Dhuhr and not Jum'ah. But how can I say that in a country where there's no single Jum'ah being prayed properly? Do you understand? Right? And it's clear how important in the way that we are in right now. And ironically, we've stopped, but the next couple of uh, uh, pages, like half of next lesson, is all about At-Tashabbuh Bil-Kuffar. Right, Sheikh Uthameen is going mm -hmm. to go real deep into the idea of the start time of Jum'ah and describe why this is a difference of opinion and what the issue is about the exact time 
and he's going to speak about, and he mentions, he goes that there's probably nothing, he goes that it's so important for us to understand this issue in our time right now, because being so close to the kuffar has clearly affected us in so many obvious ways, and they're not so obvious ways, right? And um, in school and kids, they are even more susceptible, and the Jum'ah at least gives them some kind of identity, and so you would, you would, you know, even though my opinion might be that it's not valid or X, Y, Z, you would then go and find the, the, the liberal opinion or the minority opinion and say, no, the Jum'ah is valid, the Jum'ah should go ahead. And, and this is definitely a difference of opinion issue. It's not like red line qat'i matter that there's Qur'an, Sunnah, Ijma'ah upon, what, are, what we're talking about on the issue of the traveler and Jum'ah, on the issue of the Jum'ah prayer being established and whether it's legal or not, a group of tra- uh, travelers praying it. The Jum'ah which is established in the area which is closed. If you remember, remember COVID? Remember the whole debate on COVID where people were praying in their homes when the masjids were closed? And the idea was going back and forth whether the prayer was valid. And one of the conditions that, one of the reasons that people were angry and saying that you can't pray Jum'ah in your homes and you have to pray Zuhr during COVID and during lockdown is because they said that people don't have access to that gathering. It's got to be an open access gathering. <coughs> So there were people that were actually leaving their gate doors open and their front doors open in the pseudo way of that. And anybody wants to walk in, they can walk in without telling anybody. And they were praying the Jum'ah prayer at home because they felt the Jum'ah prayer was that important. And I remember that very vividly. Now, there is a point there about access. If you're doing it in a school, it's just for the people there. It doesn't, it's not fulfilling any of the conditions of Jum'ah. But these are matters of difference of opinion. And when you have these kind of emergency situations like we have, where it's kids and the kufr that they're in and they need some kind of good da'wah and there's a lot of good work that happens in these kind of environments, then we are allowing them just like we're allowing two jumas to happen here. Bro, it's a circus here. I'm giving the khutbah this week, right? And which is my big mistake and their big mistake, by the way. Yeah? <laughs> my, my mistake at one level, their mistake, they make tawbah as well. They're going to ban me for the next 10 years. So I've got to make sure that I get everything yeah, done whilst I get... Huh? Which one do you want it to be, bro? Whichever one you're doing, Then come to the second one, bro. The, uh, uh, we got someone giving khutbah, another person leading, someone giving the khutbah again, that person still not leading. You know, all kinds of games, right? So I find it, I find it distasteful that we focus just on the kids and whether their Jum'ah is valid or not and, and the like. All of their income is not halal? You, you're with a person that you know all of their income is not halal, then should you eat with them? I mean, I don't think that unless literally a person is on a source of income where the absolute majority of it or all of it is definitely haram, do we have an issue about the permissibility of eating their food? All right? I don't think that um, a person should refuse to eat. If you've been invited and you're in a scenario, then we would be in this, in this situation, we would be using as much interpretation here as possible. There are, there, are cert- there are certain times where you're looking for a way out. Okay, This would be an example where you would look as hard as possible to find a way out. And a way out here would be if a person is selling, uh, owns an off-license, and they've got good sales coming from the alcohol and the cigarettes and whatever. 
you are eating from their bread cells. <laughs> Even if he sells one loaf a week, <laughs> that's what I'm eating from. <laughs> I'm eating from his Mars bar sales. <laughs> you are eating from the lottery card sales. <laughs> so you're, you're like, it doesn't necessarily have to be all written off. I didn't understand that. So, say it again, Hasna. Uh, so my understanding was that if, for example, a man is earning uh, his money is not large, but when he gives it to his child as inheritance and passes away, the child sees it as inheritance, then that is the right. You're, you're, what you're asking about is is what's the nature of the money? Is it is it impure and haram um, as a product, as a as a as a substance, as a, as an entity, all the way through? That depends upon the actual haram. That depends upon the actual haram. For example, if it's stolen money, it will never be halal. It has to be returned. But if it's money that was, uh, this is getting way above the level of this class, but for example, if it was part of a, a contract that is batil versus it was part of a contract which is fasid, there's a difference between a corrupted contract and an invalid contract and the impact that it has upon the money itself, whether that is something that has to be all given away entirely and cannot be used or whether that money itself is halal and you are punished for the contract, like riba, for example. So those people who bought a house on a conventional mortgage without any attempt or trying to try to do something the halal way, just like, you know, whatever. And then they buy it for 100 grand and then they pay it off in five years and they sell that house for 300 grand, 200,000 pounds profit, right? They would never have got that if they hadn't signed a riba contract. This theoretically is haram and haram money and everything. But in this ruling, my, in, the, in this issue, my ruling is that the money is halal. The money can be used to purchase something pure. The money can be inherited. The money can be X, Y, and Z. But the person will be punished for the sin. And the action of obtaining that money via a contract by not fulfilling the conditions of the contract. No, obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm saying legally, obviously, if they, the, the, the consequence of their toba is something else. By the way, I'm just saying the money itself is not affected. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's some laxity in the matter. I don't want to say this because Shazad is now going to take this to the town. <laughs> yeah. He's going to say that he's going to, oh, I know what he'll do. He'll put out Google Maps and as long as there's more than two seconds walk here yeah, and there's no masjid, he's got him covered. <laughs> the truth is what? The truth is that if a person is in an environment where the masjid is not easy to get to, and if you remember what we covered a couple of weeks ago, we said that um, this revolves around not the idea of distance, but the idea of hearing the mu'addin. And because the hearing of the mu'addin is such a subjective matter depending upon weather conditions and traffic conditions and the like, then people then started to introduce the idea of an actual distance or time, so 10 minutes, 15 minutes, even though none of these have any primary evidence. We're all just making istidlal. So likewise, if a person's in a city center or an XYZ location in which there isn't any masjid immediately in the vicinity, and the closest one a person couldn't get to in quicker than 10, 15 minutes, or couldn't get to 
or couldn't get, uh, they couldn't hear the adhan from that place. And I think there's some space. I think this person can see themselves as a traveler that's not in an environment of the Muslims or not next to the masjid of the Muslims. And they can see themselves as a continuation of their traveling state. Notwithstanding the fact also that the matter is a matter of difference of opinion amongst the scholars anyway. Wallahu a'lam. What is the position with regard to modern medicine's answer to longevity and healthy living and utilizing mechanisms like gene editing and stem cells from umbil umbilical cords and fetuses? So obviously, the class that I, on fiqh of death, I, I, I cover this and speak about this. But in principle, it is something which is allowed um, uh, to, to a certain level, but we'll go there. Um, if someone misses Jum'ah and then a few of them come together and establish Dhuhr in congregation rather than Jum'ah, What's your take on that? I hardly find this issue getting discussed. Imam al-Buhuti says that it is okay in the Sharh of al-Iqna'ah. So if someone misses the Jum'ah, and then a few of them come together and establish the Dhuhr in congregation, rather than the Jum'ah, yes, I think this is permissible. You understand what's happening here? So a group of people missed it, and they prayed the, the Dhuhr. But I always say, for regardless of Jum'ah, um, uh, uh, any day, I'm not a fan at all of establishing second congregations. I think we covered that four or five years ago anyway. And I'm very much on the opinion of a Shafi'i and of Jabir ibn Abdullah and uh, Sheikh Al-Bani on this matter that you don't establish congregations in Masajid unless it's like a Musalla, unless it's like a uni mosque, unless it's a place that's used to it. This is a very ripe source for fitna. People, when they see that kind of thing, it always makes them upset, right? And Unless, as I said, you're doing it downstairs out of the way of the people and you know, you've got other kind of situations and so Me and Shaz were, where were we? NYF? Yeah, NYF. So what happened? I'll tell you what happened at NYF. This Shaz, in fact, I was about to tell him, but I can't remember at all. Zuhar? No, we went in and they were... For Zuhar? Asr, we went to Asr. It was a very specific situation happened. Which salah? Asr, because we take Dhuhr, we take Dhuhr late and we wait for Asr and then we, we were going to pray Asr before we left and then Asr we were going to pray at the beginning time and Asr Jum'ah was later and then a few of them got together and prayed the Jum'ah before the Asr Jum'ah of the MYF and then we asked the Imam upstairs and he said basically they are now multiple Jum'ahs up to 15 minutes before the Excellent. That's, the, that's exactly what happened. Right. You reminded me now. So we went into the Muslim Youth Foundation in, in Manchester uh, uh, Central. And uh, we went in and there was like about 20 minutes left for Dhuhr. Yeah. And we hadn't prayed Dhuhr. So we prayed Dhuhr. And, um, and normally, as I said, I don't like praying congregational prayers. But in this time, we said that we'll pray the congregation because there was nobody that uh, was going to see this as a challenge to the Jama'ah because the Jama'ah had happened an hour before. And this is also a mosque which doesn't feel like a proper mosque. And I actually said to Shaz, as before we made the Jama'ah, I said to him that I don't even think they pray Fajr here actually, which would disqualify this from a, a masjid classification anyway, and it would be seen as a musalla. So I think we're good to pray the Jama'ah. So we prayed the, the Dhuhr Jama'ah. Then the Asr time came in, but the Asr Jama'ah was like an hour away, right? So I, we were uh, traveling through, and so I said to Shaz that uh, we will uh, pray uh, uh, a Jama'ah, but I think we need to get clarification because it's an hour, it actually wasn't an hour away, it was half an hour away, but too long for us to wait. 
but it was still only half an hour. Do you know what I mean? And that's absolute fitna, to be praying the jama'ah before the actual jama'ah. That's a affront to the authority of the masjid, to the imam, and completely against the sunnah. And so I said, and so actually what happened is that someone stood up immediately and they started the jama'ah, and then everybody joined it, like literally one minute after the azan. And then I looked at Shaz and I said, you know what? Um, I think that doing it right now, I mean, we might be able to get away with it. But we're going to make sure that we get permission afterwards. So we prayed with the imam. And once we'd finished, I went and I saw the guy at the front. And I said to him, brother, I want to make it clear that we prayed the jama'ah, but my heart wasn't yani, happy about it. And I want to know what actually is the policy here because we looked around and I told him, Shaz, look around to see there should be something written here because it is an in-out, in-out masjid for so many people. So they should write something like that. And he said, actually, we do have a policy. And our policy is that any people can make any amount of jama'ahs that they want and we have no problem except for 15 minutes before every prayer time. And when it's 15 minutes into that threshold before the prayer starts, nobody's allowed to pray and you have to stay remaining and you have to wait for the jama'ah. And I go, well, how do you police that? There's not a single sign. How would I have known that? I mean, I was thinking about it because I know about the issue, but you didn't help anybody in that. He goes, no, what I do is I go and 15 minutes before, I will like literally walk around and if I see someone about to, I'll say, no, wait for the jama'ah. I go, you sick guy? I go, it'd be easy just to put up a flipping notice and say, you know what I mean? Everybody can see it. He goes, yeah, yeah, I should do that, to be honest. I go, yeah, it'd be a good idea, whatever. So that's an example of the importance of being very sensitive to the idea of establishing a jama'ah. So answer that question, yes, I think to establish the, the, uh, a dhuhr jama'ah for those group of people that missed the jama'ah prayer is possible if done hidden after the time, away from the eyes of the people. Um, I think there's space for that. Um, I know that we're meant to avoid showing pictures of dead bodies and people in the kefen, etc. How about what in the current situation with Gaza? Some people want to share certain pics to get the reality across to people who don't understand the severity of the situation, but also because they feel like it keeps them connected to their situation, remain strong uh, with their dua. Yeah, I'm very much against this. This is not permissible. Um, uh, what's not permissible is to show the, in principle, it's not permissible to show uh, pictures of the deceased in any kind of manner not the one that's described in the question because this is talking about in a kefen. In a kefen, this is the most honorable kind of way of showing a person because they've been washed up, they've been cleaned up and either you can see their face or not see their face. I think there's space for that, to show number, to show death, whatever. But to promote and to show, you know, dismembered bodies, headless bodies uh, of the deceased, this is not permissible. It doesn't matter what the political advantages or the points that are being made from that. This is leading Yani we aren't even aware of the damage that's causing to us Let alone to other people or the Sharia actual basis for that We may think, and it's a, it's a judgment call, I get it It's a political judgment call, right? That this become the biggest rallying points of, of, of you know, the public conscience Yeah, When you think of the young lad who drowned off uh, the Greece thingy, right? That, that, that People will use that as an example, as a game-changing moment in the whole refugee crisis or the whole concept of refugees and our attitude towards them. People will justify the, the whole good consequences that came out of it 
through showing that body. I think that there is some space there a little bit because the body was not so kind of identified, but then later it became identified. We knew who it was, and this is not the way that it should happen. I don't even know what happened afterwards, whether parents or knew or family knew. I can't remember the details now. Likewise, when you see some of these people, I don't want to say this. I don't, I, I don't want to say this because it will sound irresponsible. But even amongst this tragedy, there's a lot of politics. You have to understand that, right? Hamas and this and that, whatever, there is a lot of politics. And the people are pressured. Those that are families of shuhada, and those that they are pressured to have things on video, on camera, to say things, whatever, whatnot. And they're told how important it is. And on one hand, you can't argue because without that, we wouldn't know anything. But if we're going to be according to the book and according to the law, this is not acceptable to put people into this situation. And it's not acceptable to, to make people grieve publicly. It's not possible for us because we want to keep our conscience yani, to make us pray better and for us to feel more guilty that we have to have sacrifices of people and show all of their honor yani, taken away from them and their dignity taken because we don't have a heart that should beat without that, right? This is what we say about where, you know, when I mentioned the concept that we are people who are born by the stick and live by the stick and die by the stick because we won't do anything except that we're beaten with pictures and reminders and, you know, the ideal scenario should be that we don't need people to die before we give them food. We don't need people, we don't need to see the ribcage of a person uh, in Ethiopia to say this is a famine. We should be, the World Food, Food Programme when they do all of the data analysis and they've seen the rain and they've seen the lack of rain, they say, in two months' time, this is what's going to happen. That moment should be us throwing the money out. We don't because we are ignorant and obsessed with our own lives and this dunya. We have to wait for the two months to come, then two months of misery and starvation, and then we start giving it. And as long as we are a reactive ummah, we're going to keep putting people in these impossibly difficult positions to become the instigators for us to regain our conscience. And that's not acceptable. That's not acceptable, but it is the reality, isn't it? Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. I think we'll close on there, uh, insha'Allah. I'll see you guys probably, well, those who are on Friday who are here, I'll see you folks. Um, a couple of announcements actually before we go. First of all, uh, we're doing the Fiqh of Zakat this weekend online. Okay, so almaghrib.org slash zakat. Okay, that's Paradise Portfolio. Four hours on Saturday. So from a UK point of view, it's three till seven. And the Americans, it will be two till, uh, ten till two. Um, and that's on Saturday and Sunday. So I encourage the folks to, to join that program. The fiqh of death again, I will not stop saying that. Very, very important that you get on that. Almaghrib.online. That's important. Um, for those folks, this Friday, first khutbah, I will be giving it um, on the importance of, prefer of, of uh, prepare, uh, preparing for death. And um, the, the tarawih, they say that they're going to sort out this whole car party and the situation. So who knows? Right, khalas. Two minutes? Five minutes? Right. Second one. Talk all the way to the Asr if I want, yeah? Khalas, <laughs> there you go. I've been given yani, the license to make it two minutes. Jazakumullah khair, subhanakallahumma bihamdika, shadu an la ilaha illa anta, wa astaghfirukallahumma wa atubu alaykum, wa salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.